And so as we begin to look at this passage, I, I want to just ask you a question about where do you find authority? As you think about authority in your life, who holds it? Who has rights over you? Uh, who has the ability to say what is true and, and what isn't? And I think as a society, we really struggle with the idea of authority. Uh, we like authority when it serves us. We like authority when it helps us. Uh, we, we like authority when we deem it as good. But we are quickly those who question any authority. Anytime that we find disagreement or uh, we don't like what an authority is doing, uh, we are quickly those who want to depend on our own authority, our own beliefs, our own righteousness, our own assumptions, rather than looking for any authority over us. And I'm sure you see this in the lives of your children. Uh, we see it all over social media. We see it other places. But this morning, I want you to consider, do you see it in your own life? Do you resist authority? And if you do, why? What is the authority that you will submit to? And when you do, how do you submit? This morning in our scripture reading, we were reminded of the authority of Christ. Colossians 1.15 tells us that He is the creator of all things, that He rules all things, and that all authorities exist under Him. That He is the authority over all things. Not only were all things created through Him, but they were created for Him. To display and declare His authority and His glory and His righteousness. Verse 19 reminds us that He came, Christ, and all the fullness of God dwells in Him. That He is in perfect deity. And verse 20 reminds us who we are. May be true of you still, or in the past tense for those who are Christ's, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. While all the fullness of God dwells in Him, and we have lived or are living as rebels against Him, ignoring His authority in creation, ignoring the clear evidence of who He is. What did He do? Verse 18 tells us, and He is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. What has He done with His authority? He has come incarnate. He has lived in perfection. He suffered and died at the hands of the Romans and the Jews according to the plan of the Father to make atonement for the beauty of verse 21. Colossians 1.21 reads, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled. In His body of flesh, by His death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. And this is true for you. If your hope is in Christ, if you've placed your hope in the Gospel, it is true for you that you were once alienated, hostile in mind, 
resistant, rebellious to the one and ultimate authority, Christ. And in your rebellion, He, by grace, came and died. That your rebellion might be paid for. That you might be freed. As verse 22 says, that you would be reconciled by His body in order to present you holy and blameless. That He has reconciled all things to Himself. All creation. Reconciled to Christ. And that will be one of two ways. The new heavens, the new earth, all created things put back into order. And many of Israel and Gentiles from every nation, redeemed and called and His, living forever for Him with no sin, no tears, no death, no rebellion. And the wicked cast forever, reconciled with justice, condemned in hell. There is no greater authority than Christ. No greater authority than the triune God who rules and reigns over all things. And if you are to live in rebellion to that authority, you are living in a dangerous place. The gospel is proclaimed by Christ. We've seen that in the beginning of Mark. He says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled. The promises have been made. The beginning of the kingdom is here. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. To recognize the authority of Christ means to repent and believe in the gospel. To place your hope completely dependent on Him. To recognize His righteousness alone makes you righteous. That it's by His righteous death in order to make you holy and blameless before Him. And therefore, we live to pursue and to know His righteousness. And it's that authority that the critics of Christ hated on earth. As we look at Mark eleven twenty seven through 33, you will see uh, the men who I've described as the critics as we work our way through the book of Mark, particularly this morning, the chief priests, the scribes and elders of Israel, those who are the leading Jews, and they hate His authority. They're self-righteous, and they do not want to submit to His authority because in Christ, the Gospel is clear. What must men do? They must repent. They must humble themselves. They must sing as we sung this morning, Teach us, O Lord, full obedience, holy reverence, true humility. Test our thoughts and our attitudes in the radiance of Your purity. Cause our faith to rise. Cause our eyes to see Your majestic love and authority. Words of power that can never fail. Let their truth prevail over unbelief. And Christ did not just speak with authority. They saw Him teach with authority. You can see on your handout all of those places in Mark. If we just look at Mark, this is where Mark shows the teaching of Christ and His authority over all things in teaching. 
But they had also witnessed His authority over all creation. They had seen His power over wind and wave, loaf and fish. Not, not only over creation, but over demons and ultimately over death. They had seen that Christ has authority over things they don't have authority over. And as Christ marches in, you remember they are angry with Him. They are frustrated that Christ is giving Himself, in their eyes, some authority among the people. And though they even saw a man rise from the dead, John 12.10 tells us the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death. Lazarus, who Jesus rose from the dead very publicly, and it was becoming known. So John 12.11 tells us, because on account of him, Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Because Lazarus was risen from the dead, many Jews were believing in Christ. And as Lazarus is with him, they want to kill Lazarus because Jesus rose from the dead. They wrongly assume that they can have power over the authority of Christ. Should not the resurrection of Lazarus have been enough to say, we shouldn't mess with this man? He has power over death. But they didn't. Instead, they sought to trap him. The critics question Christ. Let's look at the text, Mark eleven twenty seven. I'll read from verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem, and he was walking in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is good and faithful. We thank you that you are the authority over all things. I pray, Lord, as we are reminded of your grace in coming to die for enemies and sending your son to give his life as a ransom for many to purchase us not only out of our enslavement to sin, but our rebellion as enemies of you. I pray you would give grace. I pray you would help us to see with clarity our own hearts. I pray you would encourage us that we were once alienated and hostile in mind. And that in your grace, we no longer live alienated and hostile. I pray as there might be those among us who do, Lord, that you would give grace to change hearts. I pray you would do this, Father, not just because the clarity of your word, 
and not just because the reality of your authority over all creation, but because your son has died and he has made right what is wronged. I pray you would give grace, Father, and reconcile hearts to you this morning and in our valley, and that you would sanctify hearts that we know are yours because of the blood of Christ, justified in the resurrection of Christ, and clarified in grace by your Spirit. I pray you would give us endurance this morning to hear the word, to apply the word, and to move forward and live the word out because you are faithful. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Not just the context, but the text, the critics of Christ. The critics question the authority of Christ. Remember, he's in the temple, and and while he's in the temple, they are coming to him. Uh, What is he doing in the temple? We, We already saw the previous day he had cleansed the temple. He threw out the merchants. He had thrown out those who were trading. He was stopping. It says he is not letting anyone pass through the temple. He is stopping it as functioning as a place of business and greed. And he's proclaiming the truth. With many other words, I am sure, but recorded for us the statements of the Psalms. That his house is to be a house of prayer. That his Temple is to be a temple which declares to the nations who Christ is. And they are angry that He would have authority to do such. They're angry that He would take upon Himself in their minds, who is He to come in to our temple? As we are the chief priests and the rulers and the elders, who is He to come in? They're angry for that. And remember also, He came into Jerusalem being praised rightly for who He is. And despite the people's confusion, He accepted rightly the praise. Even out of the mouths of children, we're reminded out of Luke that there were those who came to Him to rebuke Him. Luke 19, 39-40 says, And some of the Pharisees and the crowd said to Him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He said, stop them from saying this. And what is Jesus' response? I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Jesus doesn't listen to their authority in saying, you should not let these people proclaim you as the Savior, as the Messiah, as the Son of David, as the King of Israel, as the one who will free us. And Jesus rebukes them. And they want him to explain himself because they're trying to arrest him, as we see in Mark 12, 12. The motives of these men are clear. Many times we we look at a narrative and we're trying to decide the motive, right? I think Peter, probably more than all people, uh, gets slandered a lot because we see Peter and we see what he does and we just assume like, oh, Peter's an idiot. You know, of course, Peter did that. He's always putting his foot in his mouth. But often in Scripture, we we don't have the description of the motive. We're speculating when we assume the motive of people, often in the narrative of a text. But here we have clear description and statements of the motive of these leaders. In 12.12, it says they are seeking to arrest him. And in 12.13, it says they brought others in order to trap him in his speech. 
They have a goal. They're not coming to Christ with innocent questions. They are coming to Christ with loaded questions, trying to prove that he's not innocent because they want him dead. And so they come to Christ and they ask him, by what authority are you doing this? He's walking around in the temple. He's teaching in the temple. And remember, this is the temple in which he cleansed. You can imagine more than just the scribes and the Pharisees are quite upset with Jesus. Right? We had people up in arms when the government uh, under probably not its authority closed down all kinds of businesses because of COVID. Can you imagine? Jesus marches into the temple, closes all kinds of people's businesses. He says, this does not belong here. Right? I'm sure people were printing t-shirts, all kinds of things like that. No, they weren't. They weren't. I'm, I'm just saying things. They're outraged. They're frustrated. Was there social media? They'd be social mediating it. You see what this guy is doing to my business. The scribes and the Pharisees are upset. And what happens? What does Christ do? He walks right back in to that temple. And he teaches with authority. Authority they know makes them, he knows makes them want to kill him. And he also knows that is the perfect plan of God. But they are uncompelled by God's plan. They want him to explain himself. And they will not accept his authority. They want to trap him in his words and in his actions. The opportunity to recognize that authority comes from Christ. The opportunity comes as they ask him, by what authority do you do these things? Jesus says to them, verse 29, I will ask you one question and answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. It might seem to you that Jesus is avoiding the question, uh, and, and that's not really happening. Uh, in, in some sense, in our eyes, if we're just looking at, that, at the way that we handle things, yes. Uh, but they're coming to Jesus as a teacher, as a rabbi, and this would be a normal rabbinical form. In, in order to answer a question, what are you going to do? You're going to teach by asking questions. And so Jesus asks them a question. You want to know by what authority I do this. So answer me a question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Why would Jesus ask that question? If he is seeking to instruct them and to help them understand, why would he ask the question of John's ministry? What is it that he is trying to give them clarity to see? What is the truth that he's proclaiming that will condemn them by their own words? Well, Mark 1, 1 through 1-5 tells us, if we stick just to the book of Mark, we see it. it says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Son of God, the beginning of Jesus' heralding of the good news, the beginning of the good news of Christ, the proclamation of who Christ is, the Son of God, as it is written by Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send a messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare prepare the way of the Lord. Make His paths straight. And John appeared 
baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him, and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Identify the ministry of this man, Jesus tells them. What is this work he is doing? Is he baptizing people by heaven? Or is he simply a man taking his own authority, teaching by men? We know he is the promised forerunner to the Messiah. He was the messenger making straight the paths. He was the one turning hearts to repentance that they might not just recognize their sin and their need for forgiveness, but they would be prepared to be humbled for the coming of the Messiah. That his ministry was a pre-ministry. That they would be humbled to follow Christ. Not just repent, but by the power of Christ to be reconciled. And John makes this clear. That they, they would hear the words of John, not for salvation, but that they would be prepared for the greater who was to come after his ministry. That he was preparatory. John prepared the way and Christ provided it. But these self-righteous leaders are unwilling to recognize the way to salvation. And they didn't warmly receive John either. And their self-righteousness was not well received by John. Look in your Bible at Matthew 3. As Mark tells us that everyone, that Jerusalem and Judea and all of these are coming to be baptized by John. In Matthew 3, we, we get insight to both the, the Pharisees' response to John and John's communication to the self-righteous Pharisees. In Matthew 3, much like Mark says, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were coming to him. And they were baptized in the river Jordan and confessing their sins. But when he, speaking of John, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with an unquenchable fire. His words were clear to them, and his demands were also. Verse 8, what did John demand of them? He says, don't just come out to this baptism of repentance, but bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit in being clear about who you are before God. He tells them, do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. 
says, do not stand in your own righteousness, that you somehow have rights before God because of your birth, because of who you are, or who your father was. While they sat in the seat of authority, they did not sit in humility. They sat in self-righteousness. They did not recognize their pitiful state before God. And when Christ came to be clear with them as John was, they found no place for repentance. John told them, stop your self-righteous charade. Be warned, verse 10 says, he is coming and he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And in Matthew, it includes with fire. It could be a fire of purity, speaking that they are purified by Jesus. It could very well also be clarifying the coming statements that are made in Matthew, that his fire will be judgment. He will immerse in the Holy Spirit with righteousness, and he will immerse with fire in judgment. And he warns them, his judgment is in his hand, and he has come. And he will put the wheat in the barn, and the chaff he will burn with an unquenchable fire. Verse 11, he warns them, Be baptized now in repentance, because when Christ comes, the baptism is a baptism of righteousness, and judgment is coming in his hand. But we see they are not concerned if John's ministry was true. They are unconcerned and unmoved to give an actual answer to Jesus. They don't really care to come to a picture of the truth. They don't really care to see Jesus' words and to hear them and to consider His authority. They're not really looking to see if Christ has authority. Because if they were, it would have already been clear. His teaching has made it clear. His miracles have made it clear. His reign over all things have made it clear. The prophecies which declared John would come and how he would be born and who would be his parents and where he would be born and how he would even march into Jerusalem have been fulfilled. Were they truly concerned with does Christ have authority? Their questions would have ceased. But we see from the text they're not concerned with the truth of Christ's authority. They just want to evade His authority. They don't want Christ's authority. They want to keep their own. And they play political games to do so. As Christ asks them the question, they will not answer. Verse 31 and they discussed with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He says, I, I won't answer you. If they will not take a stand, if they will not be clear, if they will act as though, though they are cold against Him, they act lukewarm. They act uninformed. 
They presume ignorance. The reason, if we say John is a prophet, we're shown wrong. Why? Because they denied John. The obvious point now is they're blinded in their own self-righteousness. They can't accept John as the prophet. But if they say it was from man, the people will be stirred even more to follow Christ. They saw the obvious. The people recognized who John was, a prophet. And if they're to say that John is not a prophet, John was just speaking as a man on his own authority, they know this is going to push people even more to Christ. They're trying to manipulate the situation to their desires. They want to keep their power, their authority. They want to limit His teaching. And the problem is their power pales in comparison to Christ. It's obvious who John was. And they can't humble themselves. They can't take this humility. They refuse. They claim ignorance. But they were not ignorant. Just arrogant. They're not ignorant. They're claiming ignorance because of the consequence of the truth. They're hiding behind neutrality. Because their question, if, if I do this, if we say this, then this will happen. Right? They're saying we're stuck between a rock and a hard place. If we say that John's baptism was of heaven, Jesus wins. If John's baptism was of heaven, John's baptism was preparing for the Messiah, and Jesus is the Messiah. But if we say that John's baptism was of men, and we denounce him before the people who love him, Jesus wins. Because now the people will run to Christ in rebellion against us. Jesus put them between a place where they had to clearly see the truth and choose either to confess the truth or to deny it. And they choose to deny it with neutrality. As he asks, was John right? Is this the Messiah who will bring salvation and judgment? They're too wise to answer that John was the messenger of heaven crying out in the wilderness because that empowers Christ. And they're too proud to recognize they have no power compared to Christ. He rules the waves, the wind, the loaves, the fish, the disease, the demons, and even death. And they shockingly have no fear of Him. They fear the people. They fear what the people will do. They fear the people will lift him up. They fear that the people, the mob, is going to be the real power to control the situation. They have no fear of God. They fear man. They fear what are the people going to do. They're too proud. And they just thought somehow they could trap him. They could destroy him. They could make it clear. Why? Because as Colossians 21 says, they were alienated and hostile in mind. They did not want to hear the words of God. 
Not just the Word of God written and recorded and inspired and authoritative by the Spirit, but the Word of God from the mouth of the Messiah to them. They were hostile in mind. They did not care what His words were. They were alienated and hostile. They didn't fear the giver of life. They didn't assume they needed reconciliation. They self-righteously assumed that they could get through life and death on their own righteousness. So they lived hostile to the truth. Hostile to the one who came to give his life as a ransom for the many. Now we know there were Pharisees and scribes and those who after the resurrection of Christ saw the truth. Even those who at the death of Christ recognized what was happening. Joseph Joseph of Arimathea, who was a Pharisee, and, and others, we're sure, Right? Our, our own book of Colossians comes from the pen of Paul, a Pharisee among Pharisees, self-righteous as anyone, and the grace of Christ broke him. The grace of Christ broke into his heart, blinded his eyes in which he thought he saw, and gave grace that he might truly see. These scribes, And chief priests and elders of Israel, though opposed to the plan of God, though hostile in mind against the Messiah, don't have authority. They're fighting for authority that's not theirs. And praise God for them. Praise God that their authority in which they sought is not theirs. Because it's by God's authority that they and the Romans would crucify Christ. And it's by God's authority that Christ would rise from the dead three days later. It's by God's authority that the wickedness and sinfulness of man, though responsible for the death of Christ, could not have the authority to accomplish what God had planned before time. That Christ would give his life as a ransom. They are responsible by their hands, but he is the responsible party that let his hands be pierced that they might be saved. They were critics, hostile in mind, and pretending with a lukewarmness to be neutral. To pretend as though they didn't know the truth because they didn't like the answer. Christian, don't live life making your choices about the truth based on your evaluations of outcomes, but on the truth. What is true? Don't make choices about what Christ has clearly commanded considering the outcome. Don't choose sin because the outcome might be better in your mind when He has clearly commanded that that is the way of death. Don't choose to live in a way to keep your power, your possession, and your pleasures all within reach if it means disobeying what He has made perfectly clear. There are many Christians living 
lukewarm, unwilling to live their life for Christ, claiming Christ is the authority in the Word, but ignoring His authority in their life. They're content with life and blind to their sin. They're happy enough for a half-hearted commitment to Christ. They're asking, give me enough righteousness to keep me out of hell, to keep me condemning others and not myself, to keep me seeing myself as holy so I can look out at others and say the world is so sinful, but not enough holiness to be persecuted by others. Not enough righteousness to have the world say, no. No, we won't accept that. And I know this idea stirs fear in the hearts of some. You worry. You hear the words of Christ and you are concerned. Is my life lukewarm? Am I just living like the world and speaking the name of Christ? Do I call Him Lord, Lord, but do not do what He says? The make-believers are playing games of neutrality. They're playing games. They're hearing the truth of Christ and refusing to live in the truth of Christ. Well, listen well to Christ. Hear what Christ says to the lukewarm. Look at Revelation 3, 14 through 19. How does Christ answer the lukewarm? What does He say that they ought to do? If you fear that this is true of your life, that you know the name of Christ, and, and you claim, I'm the son of someone who is Christ. I've been baptized. I've done the right things. I go to church. I am not like them. I have just enough holiness to look at the world in disgust. Of course, God won't look at disgust in me. What does Christ offer to such? Revelation three fourteen through 19. He says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Verse 15, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, and I have prospered. I have need of nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. He says, be one or the other. Be condemned or be refined. Be hot or be cold. Why would Christ say such? Well, in, in one sense, it's because there is a greater condemnation for those who know and refuse. He's not saying cold or hot is good. But he's saying if you pretend and you don't care and you try to live in a neutral place, you will be cast out with the cold. But you're worse than the cold. You're the lukewarm. 
You're those who have known, those who see, those who hear, those who have heard the word of God. You are like the Pharisees. All the evidence is before you. But you cannot submit, you will not submit to the authority of Christ. You say to yourself, I'm rich and I've prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing you're wretched, you're pitiable, you're poor, blind, and naked. You have all you need on earth, and you're living on earth to keep all that you think you need. But you are ignoring, you are refusing what Christ has commanded. And who does he write this to? To a church. To those who have heard and known. He's not speaking of the world in contrast to us. He's speaking of those of the world in the church. Or those who have been tempted by the world in the church. And so what is Christ's statement to the lukewarm? I think too often we hear verse 16 and 17 and we forget about verse 18. You only think of verse 16, that He will spit you out. And your solution is, I'm lukewarm, I'm unfaithful, and you deceive yourself in sin to take some position of neutrality. You say, well, if I'm already living this way, I might as well live even more so. If I'm already not His, and He's saying be one or the other, then let me be cold and go that direction. And that is not what Christ counsels you. He does not tell the lukewarm they are lukewarm to condemn them but to conform them, to call them, to compel them that He refines. He makes the lukewarm hot. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And to solve your eyes, to anoint your eyes so that you may see. It says, I counsel you to come to me, to be refined, to hear the truth that you might, though you assume you are rich, will not be found poor. Though you assume you see, you will not be found blind. Though you assume you have all you need, you will not find yourself naked and ashamed. It says, come to me that you might see, that you might know. In verse 19, why does he do so? Why does he call the lukewarm to come to him? Because he will make them hot. Why does he call them to live for his glory? Why does He call them to take every question of their life and not say, if I do this, this will happen. If I do this, this will happen. But say, if Christ says this, I will do this. To be refined by His command and His authority. When He says, submit, I say, how can I? I don't know, but I must because He said so. When he says, lead, how can I? I must, because he says so. If he says, flee from and take no part in, how can I? I don't know, but I must, because he says so. And if he says, run to, 
How can I? I don't know, but I must, because he said so. And why must you listen to him? Why, why must you not seek for the neutrality? Why must you seek to be hot, to hear what he says and say, I must do what he says? Because he loves you. Because he gave his life as a ransom for many. Because as he rules over all creation, all things were created through him and for him. And though we once were alienated and hostile in mind, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you how? Holy and blameless before him. And how does he do so? Verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Be zealous and repent. I'm reminded of Hebrews 12, as God comforts us that he disciplines those children and whom he loves. And he says, how do you respond to discipline? Lift up your droopy hands. Strengthen your weak knees. Do not live condemned. Do not live crushed. Live in the love of Christ. Do not wallow in neutrality. Do not be like the Pharisee saying, well, I just don't know if I'm saved. Repent with zeal. Not because your zeal saves you. Because He saved you. Because He has made you His. And because He loves you, He reproves and disciplines. Christian, I, I know you, FBC Menifee. I don't think many of you are lukewarm in life. But we all have areas of our hearts that are lukewarm. Areas where you're not surrendering. Surrendering. Areas where Christ has made clear. He said, here, here is a spot that is not hot. And what did he come to do? To sanctify. To bring the heat. Not in the way in which man brings the heat. To bring a refining heat. A faithful heat. A zealous heat that lives to flee from sin and run to Christ. That lives to know that when we were alienated and hostile in mind, He reconciled us in His death that we might be not neutral, but holy and blameless before Him. Do you believe in the authority of Christ? Do you trust His authority over all things? Have you seen and known through His Word and in your life that He reigns victorious? That He is the one that rules over all creation? And that in His rule and love, He came and gave His life as a ransom for many, that they might be holy and blameless before Him? Then do not be hostile towards His work. And do not be neutral. Be hot. Be zealous.
to live for Him and all your action and all His discipline and all His reproving. Do not ask yourself, how do I get out of this? But ask yourself, how do I live faithful in this? And He will do as He has promised. He will do what He always does in love. He will reprove and He will discipline. And He will cause us to be those who are holy and blameless more and more as we in zeal live by faith and repentance. Let's pray that God would give us hearts that would be changed. Let's pray thanking God, knowing that He has given hearts to His people that will be changed. Let's pray knowing that He is faithful. And even when our heart is not faithful, He remains faithful and conforms our heart. Let's pray in thanks that He is a God who is loving and gracious. That He has not left us neutrally. But He passionately cares for us in reproof and discipline that we might have zeal. That we would not find ourselves neutral before the authority of Christ. But zealous running from the world, and living under the authority of Christ. Father, we thank You that You are a God who is good and faithful. We thank You, Lord, that we can trust You in all things. We pray, Lord, that You would give grace and clarity. I pray that You would help our hearts not just to hear the word of Your truth, but to respond. That you would give us motives, Father, that don't question your love for us, your care for us, but conform under your discipline and your kindness that we might be reformed, transformed, sanctified, because we have been saved in your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.